This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. you please turn in your Bibles tonight to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. We will begin tonight at verse 16, and I will read through verse 30. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Then they delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from top from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. And they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this evening, I pray that you would write it on our hearts, that we would see what our sin costs what our sin required, what your son endured so that we might be saved. 
I pray that we would see in this text tonight his perfect obedience in our place, as well as how he has filled your word down to the very last detail. And I pray that all here gathered tonight would believe in Christ and be faithful to take him to a lost and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how bad is your sin? The question is not if you sin or if I sin. We all sin. If we're honest, we know we sin. We all lie. We all lust. We all covet at a minimum. Of course, if we think along those lines, we might be inclined to think, well, at least I only do the little sins. I don't do the big sins. I don't murder. I don't cheat on my spouse. I don't worship idols. But God does not grade us on a curve. The sort of logic is laid bare in James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. It says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So again, it's not graded on a curve. There's not degrees of of lawfulness or lawlessness. There are those who have kept the law, of which there is only one. And there are all of us who have not kept the law. If you break one law, you are a lawbreaker. And as such, at least as it pertains to your eternal status, you are liable to the full wrath and condemnation of God. So how bad is this? Well, the answer is displayed most plainly, most clearly, and most brutally in what was necessary for our sins to be forgiven. We've already seen in recent weeks in John, Jesus' trials and the many sufferings and injustices done in the process. How Jesus was slandered, how he was scourged, how he was tried and tortured despite being innocent. All this even despite the admissions of the Roman governor that he was innocent. Of course, we also must bear in mind something we have come back to repeatedly as we've worked through the Gospel of John, that Jesus is not just a victim of bad people doing bad things. Jesus is in control. Jesus has purposed to suffer these things. He has ordered and arranged circumstances so that he might suffer these things for the redemption of his people whom he intends to save. The Heidelberg Catechism helps to put Christ's sufferings for us in perspective when it describes their purpose and extent in question 37. It says, what do you understand by the word suffered? This is the word suffered as it appears in the Apostles' Creed. And the answer is this, that during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, 
He might deliver us body and soul from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. And it is with these thoughts in mind that we come tonight to John's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. In these verses, we see what our sin deserves. The suffering, the agony, the pain, the dying of an innocent man who is God, him willingly drinking the cup of God's wrath, because that is what our sins deserve. Behold tonight what your sins deserve, the suffering and misery not only of this life, but of the life to come. And behold what great love your Savior had, that he endured it for you in your place. So we will look tonight at our Savior's sufferings of the cross in four points. First, there is a procession in verses 16 through 18. The verdict to crucify Jesus is handed down and he goes to the place where it will be carried out. And second, we see a proclamation in verses 19 through 22. Pilate places an inscription on Jesus' cross that says more than it intends. And third, we see prophecy in verses 23 and 24. John records certain events related to Jesus' crucifixion to show how Jesus' death is the fulfillment of the word of God, the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the servant, the Savior, the Messiah, and the Redeemer. Then fourth and finally, we see pronouncements in verses 25 through 30. We see the final words of Jesus that John records and the importance and meaning in them. So procession, proclamation, prophecy, and pronouncements. First, we look at the procession in verses 16 through 18. After the deliberations of the previous passage, after Pilate tortures and makes the sixth spectacle of Jesus as king of the Jews, knowing that there is nothing more he can do, or at least nothing more that he is willing to do, he delivers Jesus to be crucified. He gives the order and the Roman guard will carry it out. We see that Jesus bears his cross. Part of the punishment and humiliation of crucifixion is that the prisoner must carry his own cross from the place of judgment to the place of execution, which was a visible and public place on a hill outside the city. This would be a tough enough task as these crosses were big and heavy enough to bear the full weight of a person. But it would be all the more difficult given the fact that these prisoners, Jesus being no exception, had already been tortured and beaten and severely weakened by the time they had to carry the cross. And while it was not recorded in John, the other Gospels record that Jesus was not able to carry his cross the entire way by himself. Someone else from the crowd had to be brought in to help him. But this procession goes to Golgotha, the place of the skull, a hill outside of Jerusalem where these crucifixions were done. We see that Jesus is crucified there with two other men. John does not 
record the details or interactions with these other two. The other Gospels tell us they were thieves and rebels. And one ended up being repentant, while the other was a mocker of Jesus. But that is not John's concern in his recollection. He merely notes that these other two men were there. Now, the process of crucifixion, in case there was any doubt, was one of the most brutal and torturous forms of execution ever devised by humanity. Once the prisoners carried their crosses to the intended place, they would be stripped naked and nailed to it. Not just with your standard household nails, these were big nails. They'd be comparable in size to railroad spikes or tent stakes or something very large, enough to hold a person for hours and hours, even days. One of these nails would be driven through each wrist to try to go between the bones of the lower arm and then another through the feet. And so the prisoners on their crosses would then be stood up and left there until they died. The cause of death would usually not be blood loss. There would be some bleeding, but eventually that would stop. But because of being nailed and hanged on the crosses as they were, the prisoners would have to pull themselves up using their arms to breathe. So over several hours to several days, the prisoners would eventually exhaust themselves to the point where they couldn't pull themselves up to breathe, so they would suffocate. This was a gruesome spectacle. It was intended to be a spectacle. This was part of how the Roman Empire showed its power and its rule over its subjects. It's part of how they preserved order in such a large empire for so long. These executions were brutal and they were public to show people, if you cross Rome, if you cross Caesar, this is what we will do to you. Nowadays, capital punishment, if it's carried out at all, because it's now quite rare, it's usually carried out in a closed place away from public view. That's not historically how it was, and it's certainly not how crucifixion in Rome was done. Maybe you're familiar with the old story or the old movie from 1960, Spartacus. It was about a slave rebellion, a historical event that happened in Rome. How did that end? Well, it ended, the slave rebellion that Spartacus led was put down with 6,000 of these slaves being crucified along the Apian Way, the major road, the major highway of Rome. 6,000 people hung and left to die on the side of a highway. This was making an example. This was showing what Rome did to enemies. And this is what our Savior endured for our sins. But that is only the beginning. After the procession, we come to the proclamation in verses 19 through 22. When Pilate hands down the order to crucify Jesus, he puts an inscription on Jesus' cross. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. We see that this inscription is made in three languages. It is done in Hebrew which was the local language of the people of Judea, the language of the Jews. 
It was done in Greek, which would have been the most widely spoken language in the world at that time. It would have been the language of commerce and trade. And then Latin, which was the language of Rome and its government. In other words, this statement is written down and is being made as loudly and widely as possible. Anyone that can read anything is going to see it and understand. Now, Pilate is not doing this to glorify Christ or to truly acknowledge him as king. This is a continuation of the cruel mockery we saw last time. Not only humiliating Jesus, but also humiliating the leaders of the Jews, knowing that they wished they had a king, and yet showing them just what he thinks of their kingly aspirations. But as we have often seen in the life and in the sufferings of Jesus, these words convey more truth than they intend. Jesus of Nazareth is the king of the Jews. Though they would not receive him as such, he was the king to whom the whole Davidic covenant promised. He was the king of 2 Samuel 7.15, by which David's house and kingdom would be established forever. He was the king set on the holy hill of Zion from Psalm 2, to whom the nations would be given as an inheritance. But that day outside of Jerusalem, the king of kings and lord of lords hung on a Roman cross to die. This he did to save us from our sins. What the nations mean for mockery, when they rage and plot against the king, the king will turn to their own shame and humiliation. How often nowadays does the world mock and deride and degrade Christ and Christians? And yet just as Christ was mocked and belittled that day, in the year 2023, Caesar, or Pilate, or any of the Romans, they have no kingdom anymore. The Roman Empire has been gone for centuries, and yet millions, even billions in the world today confess that Jesus is and remains the King of the Jews, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Now, Pilate's statement that day proved controversial, while he meant it as mockery, the leaders of the Jews were offended by it. They registered their complaint in verse 21. They do not want it written that Jesus is the king of the Jews. They just wanted to say that Jesus claimed he was the king of the Jews. It's not enough that they have hated and opposed Jesus and those who have followed him for months and for years it's not enough that they have carried out this murderous plot all the way to its completion, that Jesus will be crucified and die this most brutal and horrific of deaths. They have to get one last word in, one last attempt on their part to save face, to make this look better for them, to arrange things perfectly the way they want. But Pilate has heard enough from them for today. He's not going to change the inscription. He says, what I have written, I have written. So as Jesus dies the cursed death of the cross, it is there written for the whole world to see that its king has come. But after Pilate's proclamation, we now turn to 
some events of fulfillment of prophecy in verses 23 and 24. As I mentioned before, when Jesus was crucified, he would have been stripped naked. And it would have been the custom of the soldiers who carried out these crucifixions to divide the crucified's clothes and any other personal property they had on them among themselves. So they divide Jesus' clothes into four parts. But then they come to this coat, this tunic. It's woven together. It's a high-quality piece. It's seamless. And the soldiers, recognizing what it is, they don't want to rip it. They don't want to tear it apart because that would destroy it. So they decide instead to keep it in one piece and cast lots for it that one of them will take the whole thing. Now this matters because it was directly foretold in Psalm 22, David's great psalm of suffering, in which we find Jesus' suffering portrayed through the types and shadows. That is the psalm that opens with the words that Jesus uttered on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But of particular concern here is Psalm 22, verse 18, which John quotes, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing cast lots. See, down to the minute details of Old Testament prophecy, Jesus fulfills what they say concerning him. And John recorded these things so that we might see and know how Jesus was the fulfillment of all that the scriptures foretold. What David wrote in his own song of suffering, it comes to its highest and fullest realization and revelation in Christ. Because the Old Testament is a book about Jesus. It anticipates him, it describes him, it paves the way for him. And even in the hour of his death, we see details about Christ from the Old Testament coming to pass. So we have seen the procession, the proclamation, and the prophecy, but now we turn to pronouncements in verses 25 through 30. As Jesus is now on that cross, Dying, we see his final words and final interactions with those around him. We see that Mary, Jesus' mother, is there with seemingly two other women named Mary. One, the wife of Clopas, and then Mary Magdalene. There are some textual disputes about exactly how many women are there and how many are named Mary. It's not quite so clear in the Greek, but we'll leave that aside. But Mary, the mother of Jesus, for sure, is there. And also there is the disciple who he loved. This is, of course, John's own self-referential title. Now, it seems by all accounts that the 11 remaining disciples, of the 11 remaining disciples after the departure of Judas, John himself was the only one who was still present by the time of Jesus' crucifixion. It's recorded in other places that the others ran away and hid. So John is not overstepping when he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. Not only because Jesus loved all his disciples, because it seems that Jesus and John were particularly close. And John alone was there in Jesus' final hour. And as John was there, as he was a trusted friend of Jesus, 
Jesus, as Mary's oldest son, commends the care of Mary to John. Now, it's not as though Jesus will be gone for long, just a few days. But as a dutiful son, and as the only sinless son, he is fulfilling his duty under the law, his duty under the second table, his duty under the fifth commandment to honor and to care for his mother and to make arrangements for her care even after his death. This shows us how Jesus kept the law perfectly, entirely, at every stage of his life up to the very end. It was perfect obedience down to the smallest of details and down to the very end. And we see that John, for his part, does the job. He receives Mary into his home to care for her, even in the sorrow of losing her son in such a brutal and violent way. And then in verse 28, John records after this that Jesus knew that all things were accomplished. Now there is some misunderstanding surrounding this statement. For one, Jesus is still alive. He has not yet died. Must his death be accomplished? What about his resurrection? But Calvin, I think, puts it best when he describes it like this. He says, John includes those things which were immediately to follow. Christ had not yet died and had not yet risen again, but he saw that nothing now remained to hinder him from going forward to death and resurrection. In this manner, he instructs us by his own example to render perfect obedience that we may not think it hard to live according to his good pleasure, even though we must languish in the midst of the most excruciating pains. So Jesus fulfilled perfect obedience up to the very end, even in the final minutes of his life. Though he suffered so much and without just cause, he did not sin. He kept the law. He sought to fulfilling its positive obligations right down to the care of its mother and its negative prohibitions. He did nothing to sin against God. This he had to do, because in order for us to be saved, fallen sinners as we are, we require a perfect obedience to be offered in our place, since we cannot and have not and do not keep God's law. So John here is making a case for Jesus' active obedience, his perfect law-keeping, even in the midst of his passive obedience, his suffering to pay the penalty and endure the wrath of God, which our sins deserved. But there is one last point of prophetic fulfillment that remains to be completed, another from Psalm 22, this being verse 15 says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. So David foresaw in Jesus' suffering, the suffering of thirst. Jesus would have hung on that cross for hours. In fact, he had endured all the suffering, scourging other events of the previous night and morning, likely with little or no food or drink. And so Jesus cried out, I thirst. The guards respond by giving Jesus this sour wine on a hyssop branch. This itself was foretold in Psalm 69, 21. 
They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. This sour wine would not have been pleasant or good. It would have been what wine becomes when it sours. It starts to turn into vinegar. It would not have been a relief. It would have been a final act of suffering to taste this sour and bitter wine. And yet in this final act, we see Jesus complete fully and finally the work set before him. Again, he has kept the law perfectly down to the last detail and down to the very end. He has fulfilled every prophecy concerning him down to the smallest detail. He has drank the full bitter cup of God's wrath down to the last drop with a literal bitter sour drink just to drive the point home. This he did to save his people from their sins. There is nothing more. There is nothing else. After taking the sour wine, after accomplishing all else that had been given to him to do, Jesus cried out as recorded in Greek, Tetelestai, it is finished. The work which Jesus came to accomplish, the redemption of his people, it had been completed. And so he gave up his spirit. He died. See the love that Christ has for us. See what he endured for our sakes. See what our sins demanded. Our sins are no small thing. No trifling matter. Our sins demanded this brutal, horrific, hellish torment. This torture and suffering of the only man who ever lived who did not deserve it. And yet out of his great love and mercy and fulfillment of the decree of God to fulfill the terms of the covenant of grace by which God purposed to save his people from their sins. And while we were yet sinners, Christ bled, Christ suffered, Christ hung on a Roman cross, and Christ died for us. Now, there is only one response that is fitting to this. It is a response of surrender, a response of submission, a response of total trust and faith and worship. It was our sins. It was your sins and my sins that held him there. We could never have done anything to atone for our own sins to wash them away, to take them away. And yet Christ did everything so that those who by faith repent of their sins and believe in him, believe in who he is and what he has done, what he accomplished on the cross that day outside of Jerusalem might be forgiven and they might live forever. It is finished. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would write on our hearts the significance, the power, the glory of what we have just seen, even as it is also brutal and gory and violent. Help us to recognize that this was no accident. This was no 
misfortune. This was no um, violence for its own sake. This is what was necessary that we might be saved from our sins. I pray that knowing this, we would respond with the only fitting response of submission to you, of faith, of repentance, and of worship. I pray also as we see a lost and dying world that needs the gospel, that needs this salvation in Christ that has no hope apart from it, I pray that we would be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.